Jonah chapter 3. If you haven't yet, please open up your Bibles uh, to that place. Jonah chapter 3. We are now at the halfway point. So once I start, we're no longer in the halfway point, but we now are. So I'm excited for this week, excited for next week, continuing in this book. And specifically, Jonah chapter 3, at least for me personally, uh, these past couple weeks that I've been looking at it um, have been, I don't want to say a shocking blessing, but have been extremely blessingful in my own life. So I hope that some of that blessing overflows today um, and then that we really get something God-centered um, out of this Jonah chapter 3. Um, and really the goal of today is that. Um, I know often when I try to come up with an outline, it's more application-based. And what I mean is there's a question. So like Jonah chapter 2, how can we experience and understand the mercy of God once again? How can we return to him? And then there's those action steps. You know, we pray. Da, 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 da. We all remember. <laughs> we all remember. You say, yes, yes, I do. Um, well, today is a little bit different uh, in that as we go through Jonah chapter 3, what we're going to draw out of it is, are simply three principles or three truths about who God is. And I hope that we don't turn off our worship when the band leaves the stage. But I hope as we enter God's word, our worship is still there. And as we enter his word, not only are we engaging our minds, but we're engaging our hearts. We're engaging our worship of the one that is worthy of it, as we just sang as we go through Jonah chapter 3 today. Because that's really the goal. All right? That's the goal of every message, right? to be God-honoring. But today, specifically, these three principles um, are all about the character of God. And specifically, so spoiler warning here, specifically, I want us to reflect, recall, and worship the character of God. And what we're going to see today are these three things. God's second chances are undeserved. God's word is unstoppable. And his mercy is unrelenting. So we're going to get right into it today. Jonah chapter 3 verse 1. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to read the first three verses and get going today. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. I rarely do this. Somebody say, the second time. Saying, arise, go to... Okay, sorry. The second time. Sorry, sorry. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, you're so incredibly obedient. I appreciate it. Uh, Jonah could take some notes, but... Um, okay. The second time. All right. Verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, how did Jonah get here? How did Jonah get to Nineveh? And if you've been with us, you'll know. In chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, God said, go, and Jonah said, no. Actually, he didn't say no. Actually, he didn't say anything. He just got up and went. <laughs> and he went down to Joppa, got on a ship, went down into it, and then went in the opposite direction. But God pursues the runner that we learned about in chapter 1, and he pursues the runner via a storm in order to wake up Jonah spiritually. But not only is Jonah sleeping spiritually, he's sleeping physically at the bottom of the ship. And so this pagan sailor, and in my view, God not only sends a storm, but he sends pagan sailors in order to wake him up, goes down and says, hey, 
Get up, call on your God. So Jonah gets up, he goes up to deck. What does he do? Well, he doesn't call on God. They're throwing stuff off the ship, trying to lighten the load because it's literally breaking apart. And, and it's a chaotic scene of this storm getting stronger and stronger. And these people are asking all these questions. And it's not like, like we're talking right now. There's a huge storm. So they're screaming these questions. <laughs> uh, questions at Jonah like, who are you? Where are you from? What occupation are you? If this is your fault, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. And what does Jonah say? He says, well, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the God who made the seas that's trying to kill us and the dry land that we're trying to get to. And they're like, huh? What are you doing? And then they say, well, what can we do in order for this storm to just leave us? And he says, well, pick me up and throw me into the sea. So reluctantly, these sailors, as they're picking up cargo, they pick up Jonah. They throw him into the sea. And then, of course, chapter 2 is Jonah sinking to the depths of the sea, and then he meets a fish, and the fish swallows him whole. And somewhere in that time, Jonah prays, and he prays this prayer of repentance, this prayer of, Lord, you know what? I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. I'm going to vow to do that. And salvation, the only reason I'm rescued right now, the only reason I'm able to enter back into your presence, even though I was fleeing from it before, is because salvation belongs to the Lord. And then as soon as he says that, boom. Fish vomits him out. And then we come to chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And God is calling him here. So there's a second chance involved. We're going to get to that. But again, I want to explain a little bit about this call. He is calling him to Nineveh. I know I've already talked about Nineveh a little bit, but a little bit more. Because as I was studying through Jonah chapter 3, looking at commentaries, looking at notes, looking at manuscripts of other sermons, I don't think I ever found, like, the same thing said about Nineveh. It was one wicked thing after another wicked thing. The conclusion, they did some wicked stuff. Uh, specifically, the one, I, the one I found most recently, they were known for forcing conquered enemies to dismember and disfigure their fallen comrades. And why would they, why would they do things like this? Um, and that's the extent that I'll explain their wickedness. But why, why would they do things like this? And the, the reason they did it was so when they come to a, a city that they want to conquer, they have very few casualties because of the reputation they have. And this city will be like, well, we know if they, if they want to try to mess with us, they're going to do some nasty stuff. So we're just going to give up now. So they would conquer cities after city, and cities would just kind of give in because of their reputation. But not only that, but a lot of scholars believe that crucifixion started with the Assyrians. Of course, Nineveh being the capital city of Assyria. A lot of scholars believe that it started there. So who can blame Jonah for not wanting to go to the Ninevites with God's message? Who can blame you or me? For not wanting to go to a broken world that is hostile toward God and his gospel. Who of us is enthused to face rejection, persecution, being forsaken by family or friends or coworkers for the message we have? Who among us is ready to count the cost for the message of the gospel? Jonah wasn't. But here in chapter 3, he is. All right, he is. He's going to obey. And then we come again to 
to at least the first principle we're going to see here in these first few verses, and that is this. God's second chances are undeserved. God's second chances are undeserved. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And this recommissioning of Jonah is just that. It is a, it's a recommissioning. It's almost the exact same command given to Jonah in chapter 1. He, and he gives this commission to Jonah once again. So we're actually going to read Jonah chapter 1 verses 1 through 2. Just so you see how almost precisely the same this command is. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The exact same commission he gives them now. He's been through this journey of receiving God's mercy, and, and God gives them the same commission. But Jonah deserves to have his preaching license revoked. Uh, he deserves to be cast out and decommissioned for his rebellion. He, he deserved to have the privilege of serving God taken from him because of how he ran away from God. But instead, God gives Jonah, an undeserving prophet, a second chance. And I think what we see here and what we see time and time again in the scriptures is that God is a God of second chances. In fact, I'd say that God is the God of another chance. Because if you're like me, you've done used up your second chance a long time ago. Some of us are on our 10th, 20th, 30th, 56th chance. The mercy of God is boundless. And we see it all through the scriptures. Think of Moses, who murdered a man and God raises him up to deliver his people. Think of David, who committed adultery and had a man murdered. And he's used to write the majority of the book of Psalms and rule the nation of Israel. Think of Rahab who was a prostitute in Jericho. And she was used to rescue Israelite spies. Think of Peter, who denied even knowing Jesus after spending three years with them. But he preaches to thousands and billions if you consider his writings. And, and think of the ministry of Christ on, on, on earth when he's ministering with Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And Zacchaeus was considered a sinner by his neighbors. And when Zacchaeus shows that he changed and, and, and starts to make amends by giving possessions to the poor, Christ responds by saying, today salvation has come to this house. Or when the criminal dying on the cross next to Jesus asks him to remember him, Christ responds by saying, he will be with him in paradise. You could keep going in the scriptures, but, but these examples serve as monuments of, God, of our God of another chance. Because God has a way of using messy people to be his messengers. And that's Jonah's story. And aren't you glad? Because I'm glad. Aren't we glad that God gives second chances? Where would we be without his second chance? How many here pursued God at the very first opportunity? How many here believed God the very first time they heard the gospel? How many here turned from sin the very first time God identified that sin to you? Did you turn away immediately or did God mercifully warn you again and again and again? Aren't we grateful that we serve a God of second chances? And I'll ask this question as well. How will you respond to God's second chance today? Maybe you've been running and God is giving you that second chance to come back to him, 
to return to him, to obey him once again, what will you do with that second chance? Maybe there's a sin in your life that you've just let sit there. Jonah's response here, it's instant, right? God says, go right here in chapter 3, and he arri- there's no words. He gets up and he goes. It's an instant action. So how will we respond today with our second chance? God's second chances are undeserved. And that's the first principle that we see here in our text. And we'll continue here early on in chapter 3. It reads like this. These are verses 2 and 3 of chapter 3. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. The description of Nineveh here is interesting because up to this point, we've seen God and the author explain Nineveh as a great city. But here the language changes a bit. It says exceedingly great city. And actually, a lot of scholars say that Nineveh probably wasn't that huge. It was big, but there were bigger cities. And the language here, exceedingly great, actually means it was a great city to God or or an important city belonging to God. It was an exceedingly important city to, to God. And I think this should affect the way we view cities in the world. We live in Seoul. And many would consider Seoul to be an important city with world class industry, culture that's affected the world. But what makes Seoul important? What gives it its value? It belongs to God. This is true of LA. It's true of Tokyo, Dubai, New York, Beijing, Shanghai. The value of these cities don't come from their wealth or their size or their cultural relevance, not the walls or the bricks or the houses or the rising price of rent. It was and it is the people in the city because they are valuable and they belong to God. God cares for these cities because they belong to him. And I would just ask, is this how we view the city that we live in? Do we share God's heart in caring for his city, in caring for the people of Seoul? I hope that's why you're here. I hope that's why you're in Seoul. The reason you're in Seoul is because God deems this city important. God cares for Seoul, so we plant a church. God cares for souls so we consider evangelism in our missional families and in our physical families. God cares for souls so we consider the believers in this city that need discipleship because this city is valuable, not because of its wealth or culture or comfortability, but because it belongs to God and he cares for it. It's an exceedingly great city to God. Some of us are in transition to another city. Wherever city you're going to, That city is exceedingly great because it belongs to God. And then the text says here, a three days journey in breadth. A three days journey in breadth. Now most scholars here believe that what the author is doing is explaining that the message that Jonah has to deliver, it would have taken three days for that to effectively reach everybody's ear. That makes sense. Not just everybody, but everybody's ear. So, so it, it wouldn't be like he could stay in one place and then just, you know, 
say the message and everybody hears it. It would have to be he goes place after place after place giving this message that God has given him, and that's the only way that it could effectively reach everyone's ear, right? So it was three days' journey in breadth as far as the mission is concerned for Jonah. And then we have what follows in verse 4, which becomes interesting. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. Okay, so three days' journey for the message to reach effectively. Jonah goes through it a day. And he called out, here's the message, this is it. This is what God told Jonah to, to say. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Some of y'all are thinking, why can't we have sermons that short? But that's the message that God gives Jonah to tell the Ninevites. And I, I don't take it that Jonah going through the city a day's journey necessarily reflects the lackluster preaching of Jonah. Uh, but I, I think it more points to the surprising mercy of God in their response to Jonah's message. And this message is five Hebrew words long. That's, that's the brevity of it. And I, per, I also think that it very well could be this is a summary message. Jonah could have said more. This is the summary of it. But at the very least, the author is pointing to the brevity of the message. It was short, short and sweet. Well, short and sour. It's tough to hear, probably. So, so think of it this way. Jonah's still obeying the Lord. Again, I don't think the point is Jonah's heart. I don't think it's his attitude because we don't hear anything about his emotions up until now. That's chapter 4. But instead, what we see here is the power of God's word. Because how do they respond to God's message here in verse 5? And the people of Nineveh believed God. And this is more shocking than Jonah's rebellion. More impressive than the great fish. More awesome than Jonah staying alive in the fish for three days and three nights. It's more surprising than Jonah being vomited out from the fish. The city is a three days journey. Jonah went through it one day. The message is short, but it's God's message. It is God's word that came to the people of Nineveh. And verses 5 through 9 explain their response to this brief message of one day. Verse 5. We're going to be reading verses 5 through 9. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. 
Let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. The only reason Jonah is here, the only reason Jonah receives a second chance is because the word of the Lord came to him. Now read verse 2. Call out to it the message I tell you. And in the original, the root for proclaim, in the original language, in the Hebrew, it's actually used three times in verse 2. Call out to it the message I tell you, which literally it would be translated something like this. Proclaim the proclamation that I have proclaimed to you. So the focus now is on the message. The focus now is on the word of the Lord. It's not on Jonah. It's not on his rebellion or his attitude or his emotion. But the message works. Not because of Jonah, but the message works in spite of Jonah. And I'll say this. If you remember chapter 1 to chapter 2, um, there's, there's a transition that takes place. Right? You remember that? Chapter 1, there's, there's, there's that chaos. People are throwing stuff off the, off the boat. There's the storm that's getting stronger and stronger. People yelling, who are you? Who are you? And Jonah's like, ah! And then, you know, all these things are happening. They're throwing Jonah. And the transition comes when you have all these characters in the story. And then, now it's God and Jonah in the belly of a fish. There's another transition happening here. Because in chapter 2, you're focused on Jonah, his attitude, and his repentance, and this prayer. And now, the focus is on the word, the message. That he has to give. I mean, you could keep going in chapter 3, verse 6 says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose. Again, the same language here in Jonah's first and second commissions when responding to the word of the Lord, arise. So the word of the Lord comes, the response is, Get up. So here, the word of the Lord comes to, it reaches the king of Nineveh, and he arose. But the king is not the subject. Jonah's not the subject. God's message is. The message gets to the king and it causes him to change. And again, what we're seeing here is the power of God's word. The power of God's word. And when, when I think about the power of his word in transforming lives, and I, I think of church history a little bit, um, uh, in in two, 298 A.D., during Diocletian's last persecution of the church, Diocletian was an emperor in Rome, super evil, um, and he actually killed people that preached the gospel. Yeah, he would burn entire Christian villages. And in this particular bit of persecution, what was Diocletian's goal? His goal was to burn every Bible in the land. He wanted no one preaching it. No one learning from it, no one living according to it, and he thought he succeeded. But somewhere around 10 years later, his own hand-picked young successor named Constantine, um, he, he had a vision, and he wanted to understand what this vision meant. So he asked people, bring me a Bible. And they said, well... It was this guy named Diocletian. He burned them all. And actually, when Diocletian burned all of the, the, the Bibles, he erected a column that said, the name of Christ is extinguished in Latin. And 10 years later, Constantine comes in. He asks for a Bible. There's like, there's no Bibles. 
And then, and then well, he says he makes an announcement in the land. And in less, in less than 24 hours, more than 50 copies of the Bible showed up because not even the world's top rulers can stop the word of God. Then in 1778, there was a French philosopher named Voltaire. And he said, a hundred years from now, the Bible will be a museum piece. Well, a few years later, Voltaire died, and the Geneva Bible Society bought his house. And they used it as a distribution center to put Bibles all around the world. And the very printing house that printed his blasphemous statements started printing Bibles because not even world-class philosophers can stop the Word of God. You see, people... What I'm trying to say is that people have been trying to bury God's word and deem it irrelevant, archaic for centuries. But God's word has outlasted all its critics. God's word is unrelenting. His truth is everlasting. His commands are enduring. His gospel is indestructible. His judgments are indisputable. His corrections are timeless. One pastor said it this way. The book is fresher than tomorrow's newspaper. It's more definite than the U.S. Constitution. It's the backbone of science, the highest aim of philosophy. It's the inspiration of poetry. It is the word of God. It will clarify your call to ministry. It will transform your life. It will help you fight temptation. It will light your path. It will build your faith. It will feed your soul. Time cannot age God's word, and ages do not time it. In God's word, we find the cure for sin. We find the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greatest message ever written to paper. And in it, we see the hope of Christ coming again. Herod couldn't stop it. Diocletian couldn't destroy it. Nero couldn't tame it. Saul of Tarshish couldn't stop it from spreading. And in our text, Jonah couldn't run from it. It is the timeless, indestructible, unstoppable word of God. Now, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for us? Know the message and preach the message. Teach it to one another. Preach the gospel in your context to those who don't know. Remind one another of the gospel message to those who do know. And understand that the efficacy and the effectiveness of our preaching and our sharing is not the length of the message, and it's not the eloquency in which it is presented. The power of the message comes from the source of the message. God and his word that he has spoken. And our job, our calling, is to know the gospel, remember the gospel, and preach the gospel. We can't make anyone repent. We can't transform anyone's heart. Jonah's message was straight from the mouth of God, and that's where the power is. Know the gospel and preach the gospel. God's word is unstoppable. Amen? Then we come to verse 10. Verse 10, it says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Now, as I was reading through some sources, I heard a lot of people say how surprising this was this mercy from God, this relenting from God. But I don't think we should be surprised. If you read in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 through 8, it says this. 
If at any time I announce, this is God speaking to the people of Israel, if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation, I warn, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. This is who God is. He is a relenting God. And there's another truth here that I think we find in verse 10 of chapter 3 that we should not pass on. And this is more, again, more incredible than Jonah running from God, more amazing than Jonah surviving in the belly of the fish. It's more awe-inspiring than Jonah being vomited out of the fish and heading in the right direction. And that truth is this. God can save anybody. The text says that nobody is outside the unrelenting mercy of God, that nobody has gone too far. No one is too high. No one is too low. No one is so stuck that God's mercy cannot reach them. And that's because God did not wait for us to get to him, but he came to us. Jesus Christ is the unrelenting mercy of God. And so we come to our final truth, our final principle here. God's mercy is unrelenting. God's mercy is unrelenting. Let's look at verse 9. Verse 9 of chapter 3. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up. Verse 9 of chapter 3 says this. The king of Nineveh is speaking. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And you'll recognize the word perish here. In chapter 1, it's used by another pagan turned saint. And in chapter 1... We see the sailors. The sailors, chapter 1, verse 6, they say, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they say it again later. The sailors, before throwing Jonah off the ship, they say to God, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. See, God made a way for the sailors and the Ninevites to escape their perishing through believing and repenting. And he's made a way for us. We were all going to perish eventually. Eternally perish, actually. We were all going to be eternally separated from God, but God made a way for us. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus Christ is the unrelenting mercy of God. He has made a way for sinners like you and me. He's made a way for every city. He has made a way for us to receive the mercy of God. Today as we close together, uh, maybe you've never put your faith in Christ or received that hope of eternal life that assurance of eternal life, I'd like to invite you to make that decision right where you are. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. Follow him. He came. He lived a perfect life, died for your sins, for every wrong thing you've ever done, and rose again from the dead so that we can have that eternal life. And for those of us that are believers today, as we go into worship once again, um, let's take some time just to reflect on the gospel in prayer. Reflect on the goodness of God. Reflect on 
the fact that he has saved us from that perishing through Jesus Christ. So let's pray together, then I'll close after some time.